Well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be picking it up in verse 13. We're going through the book of 1 Peter as a church. We're calling it Exiles, and really the theme is, how do we follow Jesus in a fallen world? Uh, we live in a very dark and a very confusing time, uh, culture, society. It feels like it's never been worse. It, it feels like that, that everything has is, is gotten uh, worse. However, the, the encouraging thing about the times that we live in is that the very first Christians were living in as bad of time, if not worse. They were trying to figure out how to follow this risen Christ that they, had, that they had heard about and what it looks like to be exiles. Because as Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, your citizenship is in heaven and we now live on earth as his representatives in a fallen world. And so this book, First Peter, is really relevant to following Jesus in a fallen world. So let me just kind of begin to read the text that we're going to look at today. And 1 Peter chapter 1 and starting in verse 13. And here's what Peter tells these Christians and these churches that uh, he's writing to. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now the operative word that I want to kind of point out, maybe the verse, is verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That word conduct, uh, it's a Greek word that's used 13 times in the New Testament, but check this out. Peter uses it eight of those 13 times. It's one of his favorite words that he wants to communicate to Christians, and in particular to Christians as he's writing this letter. Your conduct. Be holy in all of your conduct. It's very clear, two things automatically. First of all, Peter is saying, just because you are living in a fallen world does not, as followers of Christ, give you and I permission to live fallen lives. Can I get an amen? Right? I mean, just because, I mean, we can all sit around and go, man, they're really, really bad. But that doesn't take away from the fact that God is working in my life. God is calling me in all of my conduct to be holy because I am called by a holy God. That's the first thing. The second thing is he is clearly wanting us to be men and women who desire to be men and women after the heart of God in our conduct, in our life, in the decisions that we make. You know, the big question for me And the big question for you is, do we have a desire to be holy? Do we have a desire to be God's obedient children? Now, here's the problem. See, now, there's there's a problem. Because as soon as the preacher starts talking about being obedient and being holy, then all kinds of insecurities come to the surface, both in the preacher, by the way, And in the here, the first 
insecurity that comes to the surface or thing that's exposed is that we're tempted to be self-righteous. Like some of us are tempted to say, you know what, I live a moral life. If anybody looked at my life, it looks sanctified, it looks holy, it looks good. But I want you to know that biblically, holiness is not just outward conduct, but it's outward conduct rooted in a love for God from a pure heart, as Peter's going to talk about. And let me tell you something. I don't know everybody here, but none of us have reached a place in our life where we're obedient to God from a pure and perfect heart. We all have room to grow, don't we? So we should all be humbled, no matter how long we've been going to church, no matter how much better we are than other people who might not be believers. Listen, God is calling us to deeper levels of a pure heart to grow in our holiness. But the second insecurity that comes up, and this is important, is that some people come to church and as soon as the preacher starts talking about obedience, they feel self-condemned. They feel like that they're so beat up by their disobedience that they've fallen so short that they, they're so defeated in their life and broken that they come to church and like, look, preacher, I don't need you to preach about holiness. I need encouragement. I need love. I need grace and forgiveness. Man, I, I don't think I can take on a sermon about obedience. But what I want you to know, what Peter is constantly doing in this letter, and I want you to see this, is he's rooting holiness not in ultimately in our own self-works, but he's rooting it in grace. He's saying, you are accepted by God in Jesus Christ if you're a believer. And nothing can take that away from you. Amen? You can have a bad day. You can have a bad week. But as believers in Jesus, Jesus paid the full price for our penalty. So as Christians, when we start talking about obedience, we're not talking about obedience to be accepted by God. We're talking about obedience because we already are accepted by God. In fact, you can hear it already when you come back. Let me just point out. He brings up familiar familial terms to describe our relationship with God. He says in verse 7, well, he says in verse 14, he says, as obedient Children, you could circle that word children. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been adopted into the family of God and nothing can take that away from you. He's not asking you to earn your adoption. He's saying you already are adopted. Then he says in verse, let's see, um, when you, he comes down to verse 17, he says, he says, if you call on him as father, think about that. I am a child of God. God is my father in heaven. He's just expressed. We looked at it last week. He's just expressed that we are blessed in grace. We are blessed in salvation. And he wants our identity to be so rooted in that acceptance by God through Jesus Christ that we can hear from God calling us as his children to grow, not outside of his home, but in his home. Listen, if you're coming in and you feel condemned or you feel like you've fallen short, there is love for you. There is forgiveness and acceptance for you through the work of Jesus. And so you can just let your hands down. You can relax and just say, you know what, God? I want to grow. And I'm looking to you to do that. In fact, let me give us a goal before I really get into the, the, the heart of this sermon. Let, let's just get a goal kind of on uh, the table. And the goal is, let us just 
hunger as God's children for obedience. In fact, in the Gospel of, of Matthew, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I'm glad Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who already have all the righteousness that God requires. Aren't you glad? that He just says, look, hunger for it. Let's just hunger for it. Let's not walk out of here and say, I better be perfect, obedient child. Let's walk out of here just saying, hey, I want to grow in a desire to, to grow. I want to grow in a desire for righteousness. Let us just be zealous and hungry for righteousness. If this sermon gives you a hunger in grace and in forgiveness to desire righteousness and holiness, then we have accomplished our goal. Amen? So how do I do that? What does Peter give to me so that I can hunger for righteousness and grow as a child of God? And here's the first thing he tells us to do. Number one, he says, prepare your minds to respond to God. Prepare your minds To respond to God. Put your eyes on verse 13. He says this. How important this is in the day we live in, man, for sure. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, if God is going to have your heart, he needs to have your mind. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I think more with my eyes than I do with my brain. You know what I mean? And so much of our life as exiles, so much of following Jesus in a fallen world is about being, as he says, sober-minded. So much of it is about having a mind that is alert and prepared to respond to God. And he gives a few powerful metaphors. First of all, he says here, preparing your mind. Literally in the Greek, it's, it, it says, gird the loins of your mind. That's what the Greek says. Gird the loins of your mind. And all the English translators were like, dude, that is like, makes no sense to a modern audience. Just say, preparing your minds. But what, but what the metaphor is, is to the old days, right, to ancient world. And what would happen is if you were running a race, what they, they wore these long tunics and robes and stuff. And so to run or to be prepared to run, you got to take all that stuff and you got to gird it to, the, to your belt and stick it in so that you're ready to run, right? And that's what he's saying. And so Peter is applying that metaphor to the brain, like unclutter it, tuck in away all the distraction so that your mind is ready to respond to God in an instant if you sense that he's calling you to do something. Often I clutter my mind. My mind has got all kinds of distraction. And I have to intentionally make good decisions about clearing my mind so that I can see God at work. And as soon as I sense that God is calling me to do something, I'm ready to go because my mind is prepared. The second metaphor he gives is drunkenness. He says, be sober-minded. Now, what happens when you, when you get intoxicated or when a person gets intoxicated? They're, they're no longer alert. They lose, they dull their senses. They, they lose control, right? 
And he's saying sometimes our mind can be intoxicated by so many other things that, that we lose our spiritual sense. And so we're no longer alert to what God is doing. Man, I can remember when I first accepted Jesus into my life, one of the first things that happened was I was so alert to what was going on. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if you've had kind of that God experience where you just like, you become so alert, like to the possibilities, to faith, to trusting God in a circumstance, to leaning into God in prayer when things go bad and, and you're not distracted. You know what I'm saying? And what he's calling us to is, is to a life that is, that is absolutely undistracted. A mind that's ready to think about what God is doing. Prepare your minds to respond to God. Here's the third. is He says, set your hope. Everybody say hope. In this context, hope is, it's really, it's a synonym for faith. But it's faith about the future. Hope is a future assurance that God is at work. And what setting your mind or setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you is it means that we are believing in God's promises, that God has gone ahead of us. He's provided for us. He's prepared a road for us. It's going to lead all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And our mind has to be reminded and lean into the promise that God is there. I'm believing God for my future. That's what it means. Are you believing God for your future? Or is your future so insecure, so up in the air, you don't see God there. You don't see it. And so you're, 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 you're worried about tomorrow. You're worried about next week. You're worried about next month. And your, your mind is so occupied with those concerns and those anxieties. And Peter's like, listen, in a fallen world to follow Jesus, you have to believe God with your future. You know, the, the issue for you and I is, is our mind alert, ready, cleared of the clutter, believing God for the future? I remember when I was, when I was growing up, one of the things I got to do is I got to play basketball. I was, I was this really tall center playing basketball. No, I was a point guard. I dribble under people's legs, Right. And the, one of the first things I had to learn as an athlete is I had to learn that you got to focus. Like when you're in the game, you got to focus. You can't hear the girls' voices. Can I get an amen? You can't hear the cheerleaders. You can't hear the opposing crowd that's booing you when you're at the free throw line. You have to train yourself. I remember my coach telling us as a team, the only voice I want you to hear is my voice. You had to train yourself. The only voice, like, all I could hear was coach saying, gutterage, which usually meant I was either in trouble or I needed to do something immediately, right? But I learned how to do it. You learn how to focus as an athlete. You can actually block out all sounds. You can learn how to be so focused that the only voice you hear is your coach's voice. It can happen. It's hard at times, but it can happen. And you know what Peter's saying? Listen, the only voice that your mind needs to be ready to hear is the voice of God in his word, in his community. You're ready to respond. You see God at work. And you know what's going to happen? 
You're going to see opportunities you didn't see before every single day. You're going to see God speaking, doing things, confirming, speaking through people, giving you opportunities to be a blessing, giving you opportunities to pray. When you become sober-minded, all kinds of possibilities open up. But isn't it sad that sometimes I'm so distracted I miss those God moments in my life? How can I be ready for obedience to God? Man, I've got to prepare my mind to respond to God. Now, once that's done, right, and I'm ready to go, the second thing I need is not only preparation, but I need patterns. And so the second thing we need to do is pattern our life after the character of God. My mind is ready. My heart is available. And now I've got to pattern my life after the holiness of God. You see it? Here in verses 14 and following, he says, as obedient children, I love the warmth of Peter as he's talking about obedience. You know, Peter's not saying, be obedient. He's saying, man, you're, you're children of God. Let, let's get ready for this. What, you are the children of God. So as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. How powerful is this? This is so good. And, and the, the, the word that I'm thinking about here is verse 14 where it says, do not be conformed. That word conformed literally means patterned after. Don't, don't pattern your life after what? Worldly passions and ignorance, but now pattern your life After the character of God. Now, think about the contrast. Before I knew God, before I had a relationship with God, every pattern of my life followed the character, not of God, but of the world. And what is the character of the world, beloved? The character of the world is summed up in passions. Everybody say passions. I think what he means by that is a world that follows its own feelings, a world that's driven by its own emotions, a world that that's, has the character of whichever way the wind is flowing, that's where we're going to go. If, if culture is going that way, I'm going to go with that wind. My life before God was patterned after the waves of the emotion and the passions and the desires that were so inconsistent and had no anchor, amen, had no gravity. It was, it was as Jesus said, not a, a rock, but it was a, it was a foundation of sand. That's passions. We are no longer to pattern our life 
after the passions and the feelings and the emotions of the world. The second part of the character of the world is ignorance. Everybody say ignorance. That's right. What's that referring to? Ignorance of God. Ignorance of the awesomeness, the mightiness, the holiness of God. The supremacy of God. Ignorant that God is the judge. Ignorant that God is the creator. Ignorant that God is the one in whom we are created in his own image. That's the character of the world. And I can no longer pattern my life either after the emotions or after the ignorance of the world. Paul talked about this ignorance in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18. He says this about the Gentile world unknowing of God, ignorant of God. He says in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, there it is, due to their hardness of heart. That's the world. The the world not only is ignorant of God, beloved, not only is it ignorant of God, the world wants to be ignorant of God. It's a hardness of heart, a willful, culpable denial of God. And I cannot, and neither can you, we cannot pattern our life after an ignorance of God. And you know what Peter's saying? This is, something, this is a very sober thing for us to listen to. Because what Peter is saying is even though we've been born again in Christ and saved, we are, we are always daily under the temptation of living according to our old way of life. Isn't that true? We're tempted. To follow our passions and our desires and our feelings. We're tempted to choose to be ignorant towards God. We are tempted as his very people to be hard-hearted towards God. And Peter's like, don't you do it. Don't you do that. No matter what's going on out there, you cannot as exiles, as living in God and following Jesus in a fallen world, you cannot go back to that old pattern. you got to... Put off the old, amen, and put on the new. You've got to walk in the newness of life. And that newness of life is not the character of the world. It's the character of God. And so he says, here's what you can replace it with. Aren't you glad that God gives him, he offers us himself to pattern our life after? He says here in 1 Peter, I love this, he says, um, As he who called you is holy. Love that. You also be holy in all your conduct. There's something of God offering himself to us. He is holy. His character is holy. He then quotes Leviticus in verse 16. You shall be holy for I am holy. God's holiness is his set-apartness from all of the character of the world. He's completely different. He's different in morality. He's different in purity. He's, he's uncommon in his beauty. God is holy. And so if we're, if we're talking about the character of God, that's a good place to start. The holiness of God. We sang it today. Thank you, Isaac, for that song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. 
For minds that are open, we can see his attributes being communicated in creation. For minds that are open, we can see his attributes communicated to us through the word of God. This is the character of God that we are to pattern our life after. And then he gives us distinctive ideas of who God is in his holiness. Number one, he is the Holy Father. He calls you. Isn't that great? I want to pattern my life after the Holy Father. And the Holy Father, eternally the Father of the very Son of God. Eternally the Father with the Son and the Holy Spirit in eternity past. And he chose as the Holy Father to call. You see that? He calls you. It's like, what's that mean when it says he calls you? It means that the Holy Father has effectually called you out like, hey! That sounded pretty cool, didn't it? Hey! And he calls you out of darkness into light. He calls you out of spiritual death into life. I remember growing up, I think I've told you all before, but I was like talking about my mother. I used to go out and play. And back in the old days, you know, you could go a long ways, go down to the river and ride the bike and skip rocks at the river and Suns start going down, but my mama, she had this, she was this little lady, well, she's still alive, she's still with us, she's still a little lady, she had this big booming voice, and I could hear her for miles away, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you, you, she'd be like, Joshua, you know, I'd hear like, I gotta go, guys, get on my bicycle, mongoose FS1 with the pegs on the front, anyways, I heard her voice call me from that riverside. Come home to eat. Boy, I fly home and go into that house and smell that dinner. You know what I'm saying? And you know, when we were sin and lost, the Holy Father, desiring to expand his family with sons and daughters, he called us. And he called us by name. And you know what? Let me tell you something. Like, what's, the, what's one of the first steps in obedience to God? Just hearing his voice call you. Just knowing that his love is reaching out to you. The Holy Father. But Peter is not ignorant of the fact that this father who loves us as a father would love his children is not only a holy father, he is the holy judge. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I mean, it is a stunning thing to remember that our Heavenly Father is also the judge of the universe. Yes, He is Father. That is warm and that is wonderful. But He's the judge. And you know what? All of us are going to have a conversation with our Father at the judgment seat. Did you know that? And all of our works are going to be brought before him. We're going to be laid bare. That is a stunning thought. And listen, we're justified by faith alone, all right? But you know what? We're going to talk to him about our life. And he's going to judge us. And you know what Peter's saying is, like, look, man, when you're thinking about your life and the decisions you're making, when you're thinking about your conduct, when you're thinking about how you're purposing and orienting your life, you have to consider the fact that God is going to say something about the decisions that you make. He's the judge. And so he says, fear him. That word fear, of course, it 
I mean, now, on one level, it means reverential awe, right? It means, it means God is so awesome. And, and be reverential. Be in awe of God. Be in awe of this holy judge. But I think as evangelicals, we may have watered this down too much and made it too insipid because I think that we've been so anxious to remind ourselves that our life is not to be uh, terrorized by the idea of God being judged, but we are to be free in, in his love and in his grace, which is absolutely true. But I think that fear not only has the concepts of reverential awe, but there, there is a little bit of being scared. Can I get an amen? I mean, let's not take this away. This is important. This is a holy God we're in the presence of. This is a holy God we're serving and following in a fallen world. And there's to be a little bit of terror in our discipleship. You're like, how am I supposed to think about that? Because there's two ways to be terrorized by somebody. Number one, you can be terrorized like, by somebody like they're a thief coming in the night. Now, that's one kind of terror, isn't it? Like a thief's coming and sneaks in and you get scared. You know what I mean? When I grew up, you know, I believe there was a boogie monster under the bed, right? Of course, I was going to beat him up because I was a boy. But you know what I'm saying. There's that kind of terror. But then there's the kind of terror that's like it's your dad kind of terror. How many of y'all had a terror of daddy? You know what I'm saying? And I got caught a few times and that was, ter- that was terrifying. I knew he loved me. I have a good relationship with my dad, and I thank God for that. I know not everybody does have a good relationship with their dad, but imagine a healthy relationship with your father, and a healthy relationship with your earthly father does include the idea of, I will be disciplined by him because he loves me. And every time growing up, if I made it, if me and my brothers decided we were going to, you know, pop off or act out or whatever we had to keep in our mind I hope dad doesn't catch me because if my dad catches me doing this dude no not good he is the judge he's my daddy but he's the judge and you know what listen Peter does not want the church to water God down so much and to over domesticate him to a place to where we no longer think that he's going to judge what we do he will and he does because he loves us And he says, listen, pattern your life after the character of God. As you're thinking about decisions, think about him as your holy father who is also the holy judge. What an amazing pattern that we are to pattern our life after this character of God. But not only is he the holy father, holy judge, but finally, as we're thinking about patterning our life after the character of God, he is the holy Savior. Hallelujah. Praise God. And Peter gives an articulate expression of the gospel. In verse 18, he says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers. Verse 19, with what? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was foreknown for the foundation of the world. There was a decision to come and save us. And through his resurrection, we are made believers. And God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. And I think what, what Peter is, is communicating to the churches, and ultimately what God is communicating to us is, don't you see, 
that the whole reason why Jesus came is liberation. Isn't that right? He came to be a ransom to pay the penalty of our sin and to liberate. It says, for your sake, he came. For you. For me. And he took my place as a substitutionary atonement. And he died as a, as a lamb without blemish. And he defeated death. And what Peter is saying is, there's no way that Jesus did that so that we could stay in bondage. Why would we stay in bondage to sin and to the patterns of the world and our passions and our desires? Why would, we, why would we pattern our life after an unholy perspective about life if Jesus came to defeat it so we could be delivered and liberated from bondage? Why act like a prisoner when you're no longer a prisoner? Peter's making reference to the Passover, I think. He's... He's talking to them. He's like, remember in the Old Testament when the Jewish people were in captivity to Egypt? And remember Moses came. My girls and I, we were watching a Moses movie the other day. Yesterday, as a matter of fact. And, the Moses, and Moses comes in. Not Ten Commandments, by the way. Another one. And Moses comes in and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. God has heard the outcry of this bondage. The weeping and the bondage. Isn't that what sin does to us? Isn't that what unholy living does? It's just bondage and it's brokenness and it hurts and it destroys relationships. And Moses comes in and at that tenth and final plague, the plague of death, the angel of death comes. But don't you remember that Moses instructs the people because God says if you take an unblemished lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, the Passover of God's judgment will pass over you. And because of that Passover, the Pharaoh said, get out of here, go, leave, you're liberated. And Peter's saying, where you were in bondage and Jesus came and he put the blood of his life over the doorposts of our lives so that the judgment of God could pass over and so that you and I could be set free and walk in a new liberated life. That's the Holy Savior coming to our rescue. And the problem with me, and this happened, by the way, I've done prison ministry over the years and I can tell you one of the most difficult things is when somebody's been in prison and then they get out, but they're still identified to their old bondages that got them in prison in the first place, and they usually go right back into prison, don't they? Because they don't know how to live in freedom. And Peter's like, don't wear your prison clothes anymore. Put on the new clothes of freedom. You don't have to sin anymore. That Sin has no authority over you. Satan has no authority over you. Darkness has no authority over you. And you don't want to be in bondage. And there's no way that God, the Holy Savior of the world, came and gave us his blood so that we could continue to walk in bondage. No, man. Come out. Come into the light. Repent of sin. Turn away from it when you see it in your life. We all fall. We, get, we fall down. But his blood and the reminder of his blood gets us right back up. And we got to walk in the newness of life. That's what it means to pattern our life after the character of God. He's the Holy Father, Holy Judge, but praise God, He is the Holy Savior. And as we pattern our life after that, we are ready and hungry. We're, we're thirsting and zealous for obedience for God in a very disobedient world. Now here's one final thing quickly, and then we'll be ready for communion. But when we come back, the final thing I want to say this, uh, this morning is that we are to pursue the love that God has given to us. 
And if I, let me just close out this chapter. Look at verse 22 and following here. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Verse 1, chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This beautiful thing. What he's saying is that when we were born again, according to the good news, the gospel is the seed. Of course, the living word, it refers to the Bible generally, but in particular what the Bible points to, which is the gospel of Jesus and his love for us and his resurrection. That's the seed. And what that seed puts into us when we're born again as Christians, what happens is, is God puts into our hearts and our minds a new kind of love. In fact, he calls it brotherly love, verse 22. Now, this is a cool thing. I know y'all, you know, towards the end of the sermon, you're like, okay, now surely the preacher's about to be done. But hang in there with me now. And look at verse 22. He says, By your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. The Greek word there is phileo, where we get the word Philadelphia from, right? Brotherly love. And then watch this. Love one another. That's a different Greek word for love. That's agape love. And brotherly love is a brotherly friendship kind of affection. But then agape is God's kind of love, unconditional, sacrificial. When Jesus died for me, he didn't die for me because there was anything in me that was worthy of his death. It was just, he just willingly sacrificed. He willingly served by dying in my place with agape love. For God so loved agape, the world, that he gave his only begotten son. So it's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Because here's what he's doing. He's saying, look, God's given you love. For community, for church, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So because it's in you from the gospel, love one another. So you have love as Christian, now go and love one another. And he's pointing to the fact that obedience is a community project. That it's not an individualistic project, it's a community project, and God has brought us together. He saved us not to be the individuals of God, but to be the people of God who choose to acknowledge this love that the Holy Spirit's given to us and to act on it. The best example I can give, the only example I could think of to try to capture this for us this morning is this. I love Sherry all the time. Y'all know that, right? Like, there is never a moment when I don't love my wife. However, I am called to act on that love by expressing my love to her, by writing her poetry, sending her flowers, and doing other romantic things. Right? She's like, you've never written me a poem before in your life. (laughs) You've never done that. You just lied. <laughs> Grow in obedience, son. No. See, but like last night, we went on a date night, right? Took her out. We had a nice dinner. 
and, and we went to a great, nice restaurant in Washington, and we sat down and had a quiet meal together, and it was wonderful. We had a great time. And what, I was, what we were doing in our relationship is we say, hey, I'm aware that I love you, but I've got to express, I've got to find venues to where I can express that and serve you in love. Here's what Peter's saying. Don't let life distract you so much to where you are not engaging in loving one another as a church, being engaged in community. And one of the things at Crosspoint where we, I mean, we, we got some strengths and we got some weaknesses, but one of the weaknesses that we're really wanting to work on here in the next few months is community. Everybody say community. And what we're going to have to do is lean in and say, you know what, I'm aware that God's given me a love for his people, and I'm going to start acting on that. Life groups are going to start kicking back in. We need to get involved in life groups. Next week, we're going to have a calendar filled with events. We're going to do a grill and chill in September where we all just after second service just go outside and just grill and chill and hang out and volleyball nets. And then we're going to do the same thing in October, but like on a large level. So we're going to do more large kind of church community events where we're getting to know each other on top of life groups. We're going to start trying to have coffee in between services and food. And we got a small building. So, you know, and we'll just, we'll find places and corners where we can drink coffee and get to know each other. We got to be friendly with one another. We got to be aware of this love for each other because listen to me, obedience is a community project. We cannot be obedient and follow Jesus in a fallen world without each other. So we're going to have to take each other out on dates. We're going to have to open up our homes and practice hospitality. We're going to have to, we're going to have to share our love for one another with good meals, good eating, good praying, getting together. Amen. You see, being exiles is something we can't do on our own. We have to do it together so we can be a light, we can be healthy, we can be encouraging. Now, I think about our world, and I think there's no other place left for us to go to where we find people who agree with us, right? And where we, where we say, you know what, we're not crazy in following God, and then we can have, have strength to go back out and invite others to come and be exiles with us, to invite others to believe in Jesus and believe in this gospel. That's why we were born again, is to love one another. Amen? We're about to practice commun- communion, and that's why we take communion together. And so we remember that Jesus has called us to receive his love and practice his love and to share this meal together to remind, remind us of that. Let us... Let us prepare our minds to respond to God. Let us pattern our life after the character of God. And let us pursue this love for each other that God has given to us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you. We know you love us, but we also know that we're accountable to you. Help us to have not a terrorizing fear, but help us to fear you. Help us to call on you. Help us to remember our identity of belonging to you, of finding meaning from you. And as we prepare our minds and as we pattern our lives, as we pursue the love you've given to us, we pray you give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and that we would be satisfied in that hunger. Uh, We pray that you would 
By your grace, train us up into godliness. Make us zealous for good works. Not works that, that save us, but works that express the fruitfulness that comes in being abiding in you, Jesus.